Seconds or less podcast. This is a show about the NBA with the Phoenix Suns focus. My name is Max McCauley. I am one of your hosts, your other host. His name is David Nash, and he joins me right now. David, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, Max. Uh, interesting night here in Australia with uh, some Suns news, which I'm sure we'll get into. But yeah, I'm excited to uh, jump in and excited to have our, our next guest on the pod. We've been kind of punching above our weight with uh, guests lately. We started off with Kellen Olsen, who I described as the unofficial president of Sun Twitter. And now we're bringing in someone who might be the official president of Draft Twitter. He, he writes for the Stepian. You've probably heard him on one of the 45 billion podcasts he was on leading up to the draft. His name's Cole Zwickers. Cole, how you doing? Doing well, man. That was a hell of an introduction. I hope I can live up to the grandeur of Kellen Olson, who I've had on my podcast as well. So happy to be with you guys. Yeah, Kellen's the best, isn't he? Yeah, Kellen's awesome. So today we're going to talk about, I guess the way we put it is the present and future of the Phoenix Suns. We're going to kind of start with looking at what the league looks like right now, whether the Suns have any chance of contention by kind of going through, you know, the contenders, the the playoff teams, the fringe playoff teams. Then we're going to go into sort of what those lesser teams' futures look like, kind of the young cores that the teams like the Suns and, you know, other young teams like Atlanta have. Uh, but before we get into that, we, we have some news we got to discuss. The Suns made a trade today. David, let's start with you. I'm going to get to call on, on the fit with some of the players, but do you just want to go over the transaction and, and sort of what your opinion was on it? Yeah, it was it was interesting. There was obviously the Dudley uh, trade first, and and that kind of shocked everyone a little bit. I don't, I'm not sure too many of us thought that Dudley might be moved um, after coming back to Phoenix for the second time. Everyone kind of reacted to that very quickly, but um, you know, you and I were having some private discussions where you know we kind of noted that we should probably just sit back and see what happens uh, as a secondary move after the Dudley move because uh, in isolation, it, it kind of looked like a you know a cost-saving measure. So uh, all the normal Sava cheap jokes were, were rolling through on Twitter. And then uh, you know very quickly, we saw the, the Suns make the trade for Holmes. And initially, whenever I see a trade and, and the package uh, isn't in the initial tweet, there's a bit of anxiety about what might be going out the other way. But yeah, a bit surprised. The Suns kind of pulled this one up just for cash and uh, Holmes is now a, a Phoenix Sun for next year. Yeah, just for one flat million dollars. Not bad. Cole, uh, I don't know if you have much time to think about this. This just happened, and also it's not exactly the, the biggest thing that's ever happened in the NBA, but what do you think about Rashawn Holmes' fit on the Phoenix Suns? I think most of the Suns are kind of expecting this to displace uh, Tyson Chandler, but how do you see him fitting with Aiton and Chris and Bender and, and all those guys? I think it kind of speaks to a stylistic avenue that the Suns are taking with their bigs as far as being ultra-athletic rim runner types who can get up and down, change ends of the floor. Rashawn is mostly like a, a dive guy right now. He can conceptually pick and pop from three, but his number of shooting threes at the NBA level haven't really been there. He's not like a high-level defensive player, but what he is is an ultra-athlete who can really finish around the rim on lob catches. So for me, 
assessing the trade, that immediately stuck out as far as the Suns seem to be pursuing this specific kind of center, um, this ultra-athletic guy who can really, again, change ends. They want to play in transition, kind of increase the tempo. So I think that's kind of what Holmes accomplishes here. So let me ask you one follow-up. One, one, I, I haven't watched a ton of Rashawn Holmes, but I've, I've seen some, and I've, I've looked up his numbers and such. And to me, it kind of seems like he might be like a version of Marquise Chris who isn't like kind of a moron on the basketball court, if that makes any sense. <laughs> Do you think that's sort of accurate? Yeah, I think that's definitely fair in several respects. Like, I think Holmes is just a little bit more bankable, which is what you're getting at with the mental consistency. It's not like Holmes is high level as far as his defensive acumen staying focused all the time. He can definitely float. But he just seems like a little bit clearer to value in that center role. You're going to get more mental consistency than a guy like Marquise Chris. It's, yeah, it's really not that hard to get more mental consistency than <laughs> uh David, any thoughts on Rashawn Holmes before we move on? No, I think Cole kind of nailed it on the head there, and you did uh, with the follow-up with, with Chris. I had Chris as my backup center in my depth chart at the moment. Uh, that obviously changes with Holmes, and he's a, a little bit more of a bankable guy there for you know, 14, 16 minutes a night, which is, which is great. I think Cole makes a, a lot of sense there that the Suns clearly – essentially going to be able to play the same way for the full 48 minutes now, which may not have been the case with either Chris or Chandler in that role as, as the backup center to Aiton. And I think that's kind of really exciting going into training camp. They don't have to, to learn too much different from for the bench mob. And the last thing I'll touch on with Holmes is it's, you know, one year non-guaranteed till uh, January 10th. So there's some flexibility there if they need to let go of him and they'll have his bird rights too. So uh, when they're looking at maybe adding some free agents next summer. If Holmes does well this season, there's every chance that he could come back on a, on a decent long-term deal for the Suns. Yeah, I think that's a real possibility. Uh, yeah, I think to sum it up, I think we're all pretty positive on this. Uh, it's, it's a low risk, low cost, and Holmes can really help this team. So it's good stuff. Uh, we're going to go on to Kawhi because this is a general NBA podcast as well as a Suns podcast. But before we get to Kawhi, Cole, real quickly, uh, I know you watched an absolute ton of Summer League. You were there, I think, the entire time, right? I was there for a week. I got the hell out of there finally, like Thursday morning, right? <laughs> a pretty good time to exit there, I guess, because everybody started shutting down the premier players at that point. So you probably weren't focusing on Davon Reed, but I'm sure you watched decent amount of the Suns. The Suns guaranteed Davon Reed's contract today. I think he makes a little, a little over a million dollars uh, this season. And just kind of get your take on what you saw from him. Uh, I think the general reaction from the Suns fans was very positive with this play, but what did you think? I think it was a no-brainer. I mean, Davon Reed, every team needs wings, and I don't care about the depth of the wings. Just give me as many of them as possible, and the Suns need shooting. Even if they're just simple 3 and D guys, um, that's incredibly valuable on this team. You know, I think they were dead last in three-point percentage or whatever last year or, or something around those lines. You need as many of these guys as possible. We see McHale's input there. Just give me all of those guys, and I think that Davon showed that ability. I mean, in the games that I saw in Summer League, he's going to make shots. He's going to defend relatively well. I'm not super high on his off-ball defense as far as consistency, but he did actually impress me a little bit more there in Summer League, and that's really all he has to do is kind of switch defensively, carry out the scheme, and it seems like the Suns are employing with a, a bunch of switchable players and then knock down threes. If you can do that in your six, 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 seven, you know, you have length, you're going to be a productive NBA player. I think he can be a rotation guy, and this, this decision by them is a no-brainer to me. Yep, totally agree. Particularly, he could be a rotation guy in the Suns because the things they desperately need are defense and, and shooting. And he provides both those, at least theoretically. Okay, let's move on to Kawhi. You know, we have a rule in this podcast where we have to talk about superstars being traded, and, and Kawhi certainly qualifies. Kawhi, I'm gonna, I, I think I'm going to ask you two questions on this, and one's going to be San Antonio-based, one's going to be Toronto-based. Let's start with San Antonio because I actually think the trade's a little more interesting from their perspective. 
I, I'm pretty low on it. I, I th- I'm of the opinion they should have, you know, tried to rebuild with this. I get the whole pop's old. They want to compete now kind of stuff. But the problem with DeMar DeRozan is, you know, he's he's sort of a value regular season player. He can volume score fairly, I guess, semi-efficiently. And, and that's nice. You need that kind of thing. But his, his playoffs have just – every single one of them have been absolutely abysmal. And, and my take on that has been more – not that he's choking in the playoffs, but more that he's just not well-equipped for the playoffs – and I know you're someone who really values winning above all else, contribution to winning basketball. So what are your thoughts? Do you, do you kind of agree that, that the Spurs maybe didn't make the best move here? I echo pretty much your sentiments entirely. I was not really a fan of it through that lens of winning, and I would have gone a different route as far as acquiring more young talent that have the chance to be legitimate stars. Of, that, of course, that's easier said than done. In superstar deals, you almost never get fair value. In fact, you basically never get fair value. But I felt like the fork in the road that they pursued was more, they need a guy who can contribute. Now, I think that it was leaked on Twitter that they wanted a 20-point-per-game score. If that's what they wanted, I think through that lens, the deal makes some sense for them. It all depends on what your point of relativity is here. Like If you look at star trades in the past, if you can get a guy who's an all-star like DeRozan, a solid young player like Jakob Pertl, and then a chance at a late first-round pick, top 20 protected. From that vantage point, considering the circumstance, I don't think the Spurs... did bad. I just don't agree. I guess, the, I guess their methodology in approaching it this way. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I heard they turned down an offer from Philly that was, I think it was Covington, Sarich, and that 21 Miami pick, which I just think is a, a insanely better offer. So it, it shocked me. Me too. David, I, I know that you wanted to defend the Spurs on this. Do you have, do you have a defense for them? Well, I, I mean, I think Cole sums it up pretty well. I mean, I just want to defend the Spurs from a sense of, uh, you know, we shouldn't discount the Spurs. I'm kind of hardwired that way to to never rule them out. And um, I think Cole makes a good point that as much as we can argue for the the rumored deals that were out there and and what we would have preferred to do, I think the Spurs have clearly got different priorities to what you know maybe some of the rest of NBA Twitter had with this deal. And um, I think they got themselves the best deal that they could for. Uh, how they want to proceed going forward. And as Cole said, DeMar DeRozan's an all-star. Uh, he's an all-NBA player too, I believe. And, you know, those guys aren't easy to grab. And particularly when you're dealing a guy like Kawhi, even though he's a, you know, a top player in the league, there was some variables here. His health is is one concern. And, uh, you know, he's only got a year left and Toronto are taking a big risk trying to get him to stay in Canada. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty high on what the Spurs got in terms of just a you know, base value in the trade and uh, it'll all come out in the wash whether they can make it work. But yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not ruling out Pop turning DeRozan into, you know, a more efficient, more modern NBA style player in San Antonio. Yeah, I mean, ruling out Pop is always, it's always a mistake. But I, w- I will say the Spurs have been a little more questionable with their moves lately than they have historically been. The shine's the shines rubbing off a little. This, this one will really uh, test that. Yep. Cole, so let's turn to the Toronto side of this because they just acquired a player who was the runner-up MVP, uh, I think, the not last year, obviously, but the two years before that. Uh, arguably, the, yeah, probably best three players in the entire league when he's healthy and uh, you know committed to playing. How do you see this changing Toronto's projection this year? Do you, do you consider them a, a contender to, to make the finals or even win it? I do. Honestly, their team roster construction wise makes a ton of sense. Having Lowry, they just have a bunch of perimeter wings who can really switch. Like keeping OG in this deal, that's another part of it, is just fantastic work by Masai. Um, being able to play him at the combo forward role, putting him with Kawhi, they actually have the infrastructure in their team to defend a team like Boston who has all these athletic wings. Boston kind of torched Philly 
um, in the playoffs with their wing play because they were just more athletic. I don't know if there's a better team, more equipped to deal with a team like Boston than Toronto now, just with how their team's built. They have a ton of depth. DeLon Wright off the bench. D- getting Danny Green in this deal was fantastic work. I mean, he can start for them. He can switch. So they have an identity. And I think just speaking to the overall concept of the trade, I loved the thought process behind it. It's You can't run the same Toronto team back again, even with LeBron out of the conference. It's just, we've seen this... You know, DeRozan, Lowry dynamic, it's kind of played itself. It's played its course. It's run its course. So now it's like you you get a top five potential player if he's healthy. Like you noted in 2016, he was one of the three, four best players in the league. And you really have that megastar. You have arguably the best player in the East along with Giannis Antetokounmpo. It just made a ton of sense for them in their roster construction. It really profiles well to winning in the playoffs. Yeah. And another thing is... The, the, the way Toronto's roster is built is very strange, right? They have some older players, and then they have a lot of young players with potential. Not really star young talent, but they have like a lot of fun, nice young players. And DeRozan didn't really fit that. And I, I think they were looking at their future, and they were and they were seeing DeRozan's contract. It's going to expire when he – I think he's 30 or 31 when it expires. And they're going to look at trying to have to pay him just a ton of money. when It doesn't really make sense because they're going to kind of want to turn their team over to the young guys. So I think that they were kind of looking to move DeRozan anyway – and I, I just think this is almost a no-risk situation for them because even if Kawhi flees, it kind of gives them an opportunity to reset their team. So I just absolutely love it. Yeah, I definitely agree, Max. And uh, the only thing that I'll probably add to the conversation, which I've, I've seen a few smart people point out, is it, it makes you wonder whether Messiah would have kept Dwayne Casey around if he knew uh, that he had this trade in the bag. Um, obviously, as Cole pointed out, you, you couldn't really run back the same team from last year in Toronto after they essentially did the same thing uh, last offseason. But, you know, I, I can't help but think that Casey might be sitting there kind of wondering what he might be able to do with, with this new look team in Toronto. Um, I think the defense that he'd, he'd be able to build would, uh, you know, be pretty phenomenal with Kawhi on the court. And yeah, it's just a, an interesting thing that they're going into this season with an untried coach with this kind of a move in the bag. So another watch this space one and from Toronto's perspective too, I think. Yep. Totally agree. Uh, let's move on to Red Show now. We're gonna, we're gonna, David's going to do what he does every week. He's going to give us a, a fun story from Suns Pass in his Red Show segment. David? Max and Cole, did you know the Phoenix Suns were the most improved team in the league for the 2013-14 season? The Suns famously won 48 games but failed to make the playoffs. Any guesses at how many extra wins they had compared to the 2012-13 season? Oof. Yeah, I'm broke. I'm broke here. Jeez, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm going to guess they had like 30 wins that year. They increased their win total by 23 wins. So that nudged out the Bobcats at 22, actually, and the Blazers at 21. So there was a few jumpers uh, from season to season there uh, as far as biggest turnarounds go. With Ryan McDonough recently claiming that the goal for the 18-19 season in Phoenix was to be the most improved team in the league, uh, it took me back to that 12-13 to 13-14 jump season. There are a lot of similar parallels to now. Uh, the team fired its coach in Gentry and had an interim takeover in, in Lindsay Hunter for the rest of that miserable season uh, before hiring its new coach. In this case, it was none other than Jeff Hornacek. Jeff, of course, had a history with the Suns, just as Igor does now, and he was an assistant prior to getting the top job as well, of course, also with the Utah Jazz. Funnily enough, Igor has his own links to both the 12-13 season and the 13-14 season too. He was an assistant in 12-13 and infamously is said to be the one who drew up plays after Gentry was let go because Hunter was incapable of doing so. (laughs) 
Then after Hornacek was hired, Kogoskov apparently wanted to stay, but the Suns weren't ready to set their staff around Hornacek and he was forced to take a job with the Cavs. Back to the 13-14 season now, uh, another connection to the upcoming season. The Suns had just drafted a center with their first pick in the draft, a guy by the name of Alex Len out of Maryland. To put you both on the spot real quick, any guesses where Len might end up this season? That's tough. I actually weirdly thought it was going to be Toronto, um, but that doesn't seem likely just as like a fifth center type, but uh, just the scheme they want to employ doesn't make a ton of sense for them. Yeah, that's tough. I'm trying to think of who even still needs a big. That's the problem with the NBA for bigs right now, right? No one needs bigs. Yeah, he's a he's a little outdated. Maybe uh maybe Sacramento will pick him up. Sacramento likes picking up bigs. Oh god. They seem to be the the place for throwing money around at the moment for sure. But Len hardly played in his rookie year for the Suns. Uh, but on the back of Dragic, Bledsoe, Gerald Green, the Morai and Tucker, Phoenix actually managed forty eight wins for the season. Now, I'm sure the listeners are hoping for a similar turnaround season in 2018, but hopefully this one has a little bit more sustainability to it. The Suns went on to win 39, then 23, then 24, and most recently 21 games in the following four seasons. Uh, McDonough had only just started back then in 13-14, but I'm not sure he'll be around much longer if the... Uh, turnaround can't hit some loftier heights this time around so with that max i think we're ready to jump in to talk about the phoenix sun's future thanks david that is the perfect segue into what we're going to talk about today which is going to be the present and future of the phoenix suns we're going to start by surveying the landscape of the league because you know people are hopeful that the suns will be good now i think that not not to spoil but i think we might dispel some of those hopes right now because this is a loaded league and uh i think to start us off to kind of frame where the league's at right now david you're going to throw out your top eights for your projected playoff seating yeah it's it's a little early some might say way too early but um i had a look at the playoff structure for for both conferences it's probably uh you know it's a little easier at the top for both of them and then it kind of gets into this this mishmash so Thought I'd I'd throw some uh, some ideas out there and hopefully that gives us some, um, you know, something to move forward with to to talk about the uh, the tiers for for the upcoming season. Starting in the east uh, and on the back of our discussion earlier about Kawhi, I've actually got Toronto uh, in in the number one seed uh, with with Boston and Philly in behind them. I think they're the the two teams that deserve to be there. Uh, I've put Milwaukee in fourth with Giannis and and Coach Bud kind of leading the way there hopefully they can finally um, you know get things right there for Giannis and, and build the right team around him and, and hopefully have some health too Indiana at five Washington at six and then I've thrown Miami in at seven kind of running the same team back and uh, my wild card for the for the eighth seed is the Detroit Pistons uh, with the aforementioned Dwayne Casey at the helm uh, moving to the west Got the Warriors at, at number one again. Hard to argue with that, I think. And and Houston again at two. I've gone with OKC at three and Utah at four. Bron and the LA Lakers at five. Hard to, to bet against him. I've thrown the Pelicans in at six. And then my seven and eight in the West, which could be a you know a real handful of teams, which I'm sure we'd get into. But um, I'm going to go with the Nuggets and Minnesota to round out the Western Conference. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I think I agree with most of that, but we'll get into the points of disagreement. Let's start. Let's start with the contenders. Let's start out west. Cole. I, I think that the most people, everyone knows, obviously, Golden State's a contender, probably the the favorite. Houston, 
maybe they've fallen off a little bit, but they're still sort of on that level. Do you think anybody else in the West should be considered among those uh, with those two, or maybe not? But do you think that you're looking for a team that could possibly do that? You know, a month in the season, you're like, oh wait, yeah, that team is joined there. I think the two most interesting teams, actually, I agree with David's order here, OKC and Utah, just because they have established kind of identities now, especially Utah, like with that scheme and Quinn Snyder, they, you know, they know how to execute the scheme. All their players are kind of familiar with it. They're a really good regular season team who can also perform in the playoffs if they get enough ancillary creation next to Donovan Mitchell. But I tend to favor those teams that just have a more established identity, like the Thunder, for example, if Roberson comes back, they have a pretty established pecking order as far as how they play. I'm not a really big fan of it as far as just overall creativity <laughs> on the team overall. But I think that if you're assessing teams and just star level talent, you know, Westbrook, Paul George, Roberson, Steven Adams, those guys can get you far, especially, you know, in, in the race for standings in the regular season. And we have to remember here that they lost Melo, and that's a net positive because he you could argue he was the reason they lost the series to Utah in the playoffs. So I do agree with that order. And I think... I would still put the Rockets just a touch ahead, both of those guys. And of course, the dubs are even elevated another tier. But I think those are the two teams that make the most sense. I'm not sure if the Lakers ancillary young guys are ready to make that leap with LeBron. So those are definitely the guys or the teams that I have in contention for that. Yeah, I I agree with both of you and David, uh, especially on OKC. And and I I actually made a, I don't know, maybe it's a hot take, a lukewarm take on a couple podcasts ago that I think OKC can win the title this year or next year. If things kind of break their way, Golden State kind of falls off a little bit. I was a little concerned about the about the Dennis Schroeder trade yesterday. Um, I don't love Dennis Schroeder, but I, I'm not too worried about it if they limit him to sort of a backup role where he doesn't ever play with Westbrook and they kind of do the same thing they do with Westbrook with him, where they just surround him with defenders and kind of just let him go wild and just you know play an excellent defense around him. What, what do you think, Cole? Did, what were your reactions to the Schroeder trade? And it obviously seems like a pretty big risk thing. Do you think there's a reward there too? Not really, honestly. That's the I, I didn't really I wasn't a fan of it. I would have just preferred maybe I don't I don't like stretching guys like Bello. Honestly, just as a cap guy, you hate seeing like dead salary on a salary sheet. So that's just you have to get accustomed to that. But I'm not sure what his role is. I mean, it's pretty clear he's gonna run the backup unit, but in the playoffs, you're not gonna play two point guards together. I just don't see a lot of upside there. It's more of a regular season signing, but you're paying somebody fifteen and a half million to be your backup point guard who's not gonna play in the playoffs. So that from that vantage point, I just you know, I, I didn't get the the investment long term. I know you have to get off mellow and stuff, but I didn't really see the upside in acquiring a player like that who's just not a really conducive fit on this roster. I, I don't totally disagree with you. I, I, I sort of just try to talk myself into it because I, I love OKC so much. But uh, I, I the, the big problem with it, if it was like one year, 15 million for Schroeder, I'd be probably more fine with it. But He's got two more years left. Like, this is a commitment to a guy who has been, for all intents and purposes, just an awful teammate. Uh, and just kind of a hard guy to play with, a hard guy to play around, both on the court and off the court. So I don't totally get it. David, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you both kind of hit the main takeaways there. I've, you know, there's obviously a, a link there to, to OKC, maybe trying to get back to the, you know, Reggie Jackson, Russell Westbrook, you know, tandem that they had going there with the Thunder and upgrade their overall talent base. But I think as Cole said, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what it means when it comes to the pointy end of the season in the playoffs. But um, I guess the only difference there is, you know, Schroeder has a little bit more long-term commitment and, and Jackson became a little bit of a malcontent um, because he was looking to get paid. And I thought it was interesting that the Thunder, it sounds like they, they got to meet with Schroeder before making the trade. He's probably going to say anything he can to, to get out of Atlanta and what they're kind of doing. But, you know, I think it's interesting. You know, they obviously thought that it was worth 
uh, taking the risk. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And I think ever since you've kind of mentioned OKC as a you know legit contender, I've tried to you know take a little bit more notice to that. And um, yeah, I think there's there's definitely a, a point to be had there. And you know, Houston have maybe even fallen back a little bit from last year. So you know, maybe there is a, a tier all on their own that, that sits behind the Warriors and it's uh, not just Houston in the West anymore. Well, another problem is they're going to sign Melo, it seems like. And that's as Cole mentioned, he's a net minus to any team he's on at this point. So that's not going to help. I just find that fascinating. Um, obviously, the Rockets, you know, they're a smart front office. Maybe there's something there that um, they believe, you know, they can work with. I think that I saw something about Melo being quite efficient as a screener last year. Um, so maybe there's something more, more, he, more he thinks that he can do there. Um, but the the D'Antoni Mellow reunion is uh, a fascinating backdrop to that move, which, uh, uh, yeah, I just I don't understand at all. I was going to say the Warriors are also fascinated with Mello to Houston. So that's just deserves being mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're happy about it. I guess, you know, Daryl Morey's he's big on taking risks. And I guess this is a very big risk. Let's move on to the Eastern contenders. I think they're in some ways more interesting because I think there's a, a trio of teams that you can make an argument for to be the best team in the East right now. Uh, maybe you could, I mean, maybe someone could throw in Milwaukee if they really believe in Giannis, but I, I think it's Boston, Philadelphia, and Toronto. I'll start with you, Cole. Who do you think, who's your favorite to get out of the East at this early stage? Won't hold you to it, but right now, gun to your head, who's the favorite? I think I'm going to go Boston here just because we forget that Gordon Hayward is returning, Kyrie Irving. They're just going to have a ton of depth. And they're another one of these system teams where Brad Stevens just runs a very tight regiment and they know how to play in that scheme. And I think getting producers like Jason Tatum, his rookie year was also was obviously incredible. Just having the depth on the wings is going to be really hard to match up with. I trust their ecosystem. I think the most out of all these teams, uh, the Raptors can guard them. That's going to be a really fascinating series. And the Sixers, I do think they deserve to be mentioned in this class, but it, a lot depends on Markel Fultz. Like if he turns to prospect Markel Fultz, I think they have a shot. But we saw last year, like these teams that have all of this wing depth just give the Sixers problems because they don't have enough guys who can really guard these caliber of players. So in a playoff series, that's really going to matter. Preview, we'll, we might be getting to Markel Fultz a little bit later on. But <laughs> I'm going to take a while to think about this. I kind of want to see how Kawhi like takes to, to Toronto and stuff because I really might say Toronto is my favorite. I, I really like what they've put together. I think that they have a, a perfect modern team for defending really any team in the league, especially Philadelphia. Like, Philadelphia has to be the team that's the most devastated by this Kawhi trade because, I mean, Kawhi Leonard will shut Ben Simmons down. That's not a good matchup for them. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that that just it's like a double-edged sword really for them too because you lose out on getting a player like Kawhi who could have really helped them against the Celtics being able to guard Jason Tatum Jalen Brown and then alternatively now you have to play against him and he's a horrible matchup for you because we saw how the Celtics kind of scheme for Ben as far as keeping him out of transition showing him multiple bodies in the paint then you just throw in the fact that Toronto can do that same can kind of watch that film break that down and implement a similar strategy but with arguably the best defensive wing in the league that's going to be a tough sell yeah, I think people are forgetting how damn good Kawhi Leonard is. He's the best defender in the entire NBA when he's when he's right. So it's just a, it's a massive improvement from Demar Derozan in terms of in terms of a playoff player, assuming he's healthy. David, how about you? What do you think? Do you you like Boston, Philadelphia, or, or Toronto? Yeah, I obviously had Toronto at the top there with my uh, playoff seedings, and I agree for the most part with, with you guys on that. So um, I think you know I expect Boston to get off to a, a bit of a slow start and. Um, you know, they might be the more dangerous team come playoff time, but uh, I'm definitely locking in Toronto as my, my number one seed in the East at the moment. Yeah, so I guess the, the message is sorry, Philly fans. We like the other teams more. 
Uh, let's move to uh, let's move to the solid West playoff teams. I think this is maybe one of the more interesting discussions on the board here. So everyone sort of assumes OKC, Utah, the Lakers will make the playoffs. Anybody want to make an argument the Lakers won't make the playoffs? I am not betting against LeBron. That's rule number one in my basketball philosophy is I never pick against LeBron unless I absolutely have to. They're trying as hard as they possibly can to make us with this Michael Beasley signing going down to the McGee and the Stevenson and the Rondo. But yeah, I'm not going to either. So let me ask you this. So in addition to those teams, who do you feel the best about making the playoffs? Let's start with you, Cole. Yeah, I think I would lean maybe the Pelicans just because the Anthony Davis factor, Drew Holiday, even though I don't like kind of their offseason overall. I know Miritich is good, but losing Boogie, I think that's actually going to hurt them a little bit as far as their overall depth. And, and their wings aren't great. Uh, maybe they go out inside of David Nwaba. But I think the Pelicans... The Nuggets are, you know, they're bankable offensively. I think they're a top five offense just with all of the, you know, the shooting they have around Nikola Jokic. So those two teams stand out. Minnesota, if Jimmy Butler's healthy, they're in contention as well. But I guess those teams outside of the realm of the elites are the ones I feel the most comfortable with. How about you, David? Well, I was going to throw it to you quickly. I think you're, you know, you're pretty high on the Pelicans. They're definitely uh, the next one in, in my crop. But, um, you know, what do you think about, you know, what's your argument for them this season? So... I yeah I'm I echo what Cole said about Anthony Davis but I'm actually a little higher on their offseason I I just love the Randall signing I think that Anthony Davis Nikola Miritich and, and Randall are just an excellent big trio they kind of Miritich and Randall kind of do opposite things but I think they both kind of weirdly fit with Anthony Davis in different ways and I think it's gonna be really hard for for a team to match up with all three of those guys at once what do you think about that Cole? I think there's validity to that. I mean, I do like their 4-5 pairings. I, I don't know how much. You can have Julius guard fives to take some of that beating off Davis. Just historically, Davis doesn't like playing the five full-time because of the wear and tear in the regular season. So I get that, and I love Drew Holiday. I've always been in Drew Holiday stand. I just kind of like the three spot is kind of up in the air, you know, getting Alfred Payton. I'm not super high on him if they start him. Uh, he's like a worse version of Rondo, frankly. Rondo has that outlier kind of intelligence. But as far as a non-shooter around Davis and Miritich and Randall and, and Holiday, I don't know. I, I think that their off season is fine. They just haven't done really anything to blow me away as far as contributing to need areas. We, of course, heard some maybe sign-and-trade possibilities with Boogie, Otto Porter, who knows if that was even real, but I think they do need more on the wing. But yeah, for me, it just comes down to the fact that they have two incredibly good players. One, you know, elite player, Anthony Davis, Drew Holiday, and then they have enough infrastructure, I think, to support them. Yeah, considering how much money Boogie ended up getting, it's hard for me to imagine the sign-in trade with the auto port was real. Let's move to the East. So the East is maybe slightly less interesting, but still interesting. You know, Indiana and Milwaukee, I think, are teams that most people expect to make the playoffs. Let's ask this instead. If a team gets the four seed that isn't one of the three contenders or Indiana and Milwaukee, who's it going to be? Cole, what do you think? I think Miami, honestly, just because they have a top five coach in Eric Spolstra. They have, again, that cohesion on their roster. They know how to play together, in the, especially in the regular season. They play really hard. They just have a lot of qualities that I think are going to put them at very good, but not elite. Their ceiling is capped, but I think getting the four spot, it wouldn't surprise me at all. I think the Wizards are really talented, but they're a little bit more up and down. And then the rest of the East, to me, is kind of like hit or miss. Yeah, I'll say as a Suns fan, it's nice to have, not have to root against Miami anymore because we turned <laughs> that pick away. They're, they're not fun to root against, to be honest with you. David, what do you think? Yeah, I'll, I'll echo that sentiment there. I'm, I'm kind of uh, over 
wanting Miami to do badly because they uh, historically don't. I think they're definitely one of the teams to watch there, just kind of running it back and, you know, that consistency from season on season. I'll throw the Wizards out there. Uh, I think they, you know, overall talent-wise on their roster, I think they've kind of got the talent. It's just whether they can work it all out. Um, Not a lot's changed. They obviously ship Gortat out, um, bring Dwight Howard in, which probably isn't going to help the... uh, working it out stakes but you know if if they can get something to click and everything kind of fires from early on I think they're definitely talent wise the type of team that um, might be able to go on a bit of a run and and yeah get home court by the end of the season yeah I agree with both of your guys teams so I'm not going to add my own let's just move on to the west fringe playoff teams which I think we sort of see as like the Clippers Memphis Portland San Antonio maybe Dallas Cole, out of those teams, who do you think has the most like potential for just complete disaster? I think probably Memphis, just because they're so top heavy with their players. Like it's all predicated on Mike Conley and Marcus Gasol. I think they have the highest variance, I guess you could say. If they're healthy and considering the way Jaron Jackson played in summer league acquiring, you know, Kyle Anderson, I think that they can be a playoff team. I think they can be the seventh or eighth seed. But if Mike Conley's injured, if Marcus Gasol's injured, but Conley especially, just because they don't really have another initiator kind on their roster, I think things could really fall apart for them. David, what do you think? Yeah, I'd just back up what Cole just said. I think Memphis are really intriguing for me. I think they've kind of got the biggest gap between best case scenario and, and worst case. I think last season we saw, you know, essentially what worst case scenario looks like with, you know, Conley being out, Parsons not being able to really stay on the floor. Um, and, and Gasol, you know, not looking like he's having fun out there on the court. But, uh, you know, if it all clicks and uh, particularly with, it, you know, some of the off-season moves that they've made around the fringes, which team depth and things is what's hurt them in, in the past. And they've definitely made a few moves that kind of strengthened them a little there. So, you know, all going right, I could see Memphis, um, you know, really pushing for a playoff spot and, you know, really pushing maybe even up to, you know, around that Lakers fifth, sixth seed um, at the moment. But uh, it, it's it's a hard one to gauge because, yeah, it, there's just such wide variance there, I think. Yeah, I'll add, I'm, I'm pretty worried about Portland for some reason. There's seems to be some bad juju with that team. I didn't really like their offseason. Uh, I didn't get their pick. I didn't get their, their free agent signings. Lillard seems, you know, at least a little bit unhappy. I, I don't think the Lillard, CJ McCollum thing's, you know, built to last. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they have a really bad season and end up trading probably McCollum or something like that at the deadline. Let's move to the East. These teams are really boring, so let's just get your quick thoughts on them. Any thoughts on whether – can Charlotte, Chicago, or Detroit do anything interesting this year, Cole? Uh, sure. <laughs> I'm not sure what team I would bet on to do so. I mean, Detroit, at least they have, you know, they have the top level talent in their front court. They just don't really have the surrounding talent, but Blake Griffin's still a great player. I think he gets knocked too much and he's outstanding overall. Charlotte, I mean, Kemba Walker, they're kind of driven by him. I mean, Tony Parker, we don't know what, what we're, he's going to give them as far as competing um, contributing to winning and all of that. You can see it working itself out a little bit. Maybe their chemistry is a little bit better this year, getting Dwight out of the building and getting Hall of Famer Timothy Mozgov on the roster. But a lot of these teams, <laughs> like the Bulls don't make any damn sense to me, frankly. I mean, as a roster construction, like I don't get having Levine and Parker on the wings. I get it offensively, but defensively, I just don't know if that's tenable overall, especially you know with Lowry Markkinen, who was a better defender than I expected, but I'm not sure is you know, above average necessarily. I love Hoiberg as a coach, but the, the pieces on that team don't really fit. How often is Wendell Carter playing? If they sign Jaleel Okafor, I think that's like a, a code red, basically. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't agree with their approach, but they're definitely a talented team, and I like their coach. David? Yeah, I'm going with Detroit. 
uh, as I, I'm sure you gather through this, I kind of go with the overall talent base, particularly this far down. Uh, if you if you're going to make a bet on someone, and uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Blake Griffin. I think if he's healthy, he could kind of pull that team into the playoffs in the East. But it is a bit of a mishmash, you know. There's there's a whole bunch of teams there that could uh, get on a run and and make one of those last spots. But um, yeah, if you had to gun to my head right now, I would, I would definitely go with the Pistons to sneak into the eighth spot. Yeah, uh, I think Charlotte and Detroit are the two most boring teams in the entire league. And <laughs> Chicago, Chicago's interesting, but they're not any good. Uh, they'll be fun to watch, though. I mean, I don't know what the hell they're going to be doing, so uh, they're going to be a nightly tune-in, but like none of these three teams are going to be any good, so we're just going to move on. Uh, Phoenix, Sacramento, Atlanta, Brooklyn, New York, Orlando, and I guess I'll throw in Dallas. Which one of those teams has the best chance to make the playoffs? We'll start with David this time, mix it up. Sure. I mean, I, I automatically go to the East as kind of what we were talking about. It's it's a little more open there. Um, you know, I really like a team like Dallas in terms of, you know, taking a gamble to pick a team on, that might uh, exceed expectations. But, you know, they could even do that. And we're going to get into this with kind of how Phoenix's season might play out. But, you know, they could even have an amazing season kind of like what we touched on the, in the Did You Know segment and have 45 wins and, and not make the playoffs. So I'm definitely going to go East just because of the openness. Not a team that you mentioned, but I would throw out that, you know, if Cleveland hold on to Kevin Love and, and he uh, has a, a really good season and all things go well there, maybe they could sneak into a playoff spot. But of the teams that you mentioned, I suppose Orlando, yeah, there's there's not a lot there, then, which is why we're talking about them being kind of unlikely to make the playoffs, I suppose. Yeah, I forgot about Cleveland, and I don't think I'm going to be the only person to forget about Cleveland over the next few years. <laughs> Cole, how about you? What do you think? I like answering questions ahead of David because I'm basically just going to echo everything he said. Um, I totally agree. I, Dallas is my favorite team of that lot just because I do think that Luka is going to be an immediate contributor. I like Rick Carlisle. I like his scheme. Getting DeAndre Jordan, that makes conceptual sense for me on that roster as far as heavy pick and roll, having a dive guy to the rim. But it's the West. Like They're not going to make the playoffs because it's the West. And all the, all the East teams you reference I, i'm not a fan of any of them like <laughs> it's just kind of like throw a name in a hat and pick out a team like they could make the playoffs i don't know like i think i would actually side with david again echoing that cleveland sentiment just because if they have kevin love and i know that wasn't part of the initial list i could see them you know squeezing into the eighth spot just because they have at least some veteran leadership we'll see what happens with kyle corver some rumors with him going potentially to the sixers but he's an important piece for them but none of these teams really intrigue me yeah, you guys are cheaters, honestly. <laughs> I excluded <laughs> Cleveland for a reason. Yeah, I mean, I guess Cleveland's the answer if you're including them. I mean, God, maybe Atlanta of Trey's somehow really good right away, but probably not. I mean, I'm here for it. Making the I'm very much here That'd for that. That'd be fun, right? That'd be fun. Uh, okay, so I think the point of this exercise was, was to say that the Phoenix Suns have almost 0% chance of making the playoffs this year and maybe even next year. So I think if you're a Suns fan, you're hoping they're going to be good in the future. You're hoping that in the next, you know, maybe three years to five years from now, they're going to be one of the teams who's, you know, a, either a contender or a solid playoff team. And the way we're going to try to figure out whether that'll be true or not is by looking at kind of their competition among these bad teams or fringy teams, looking at the, the cores, the young cores, and also not just the young cores, but also like the coaching, the, the franchise location, just sort of doing our best guess at guessing who are going to be the best teams that are not among the best teams now in five years. So I guess to start off, let's go to Cole. Cole... Out of all those teams, who are you most confident in being the best team in, in, in four or five years? Okay, so I'm going to gear this very specifically. I, I have a tier of three teams that I like as far as Phoenix, Dallas, and New York having uh, 
a combination of established players like a Devin Booker, Porzingis, and also high-profile pedigree guys who I have a lot of faith in his prospects. It's hard to evaluate a guy like Luka Doncic, for example, because he hasn't played an NBA game yet. But I think Dallas overall, I'm the highest on just because they, out of all these teams, they have the initiator equity there. They have Luka. They have Dennis Smith, who I'm high on. They have the playmaking that you can build off of. And Rick Carlisle, of course, is like a top five, top six coach, I believe, in this scheme. I think they know what they're doing um, as far as that goes. So I think I have the most confidence in Dallas long term, but they're also at the same time, kind of almost the least proven of that group, just because there are two prospects or two premier guys or more prospects than actually proven commodities at the NBA level. Real quick, Cole, rank Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, Dennis Smith Jr. and Luka Doncic in terms of who you want going forward. Oh God, you're just going to do this to me right now. Um, <laughs> I'm doing this to you right now. That's what this podcast is. If we put people on the spot. Oh boy. Uh, Luka Doncic is definitely one for me. Um, I would say it's hard for me to, to sell Dennis Smith over Devin Booker just based on the sample. So I'm going to like like close hair tie them. And we'll see if like Devin can make that jump to being more of an initiator type. I think that might be a little bit more of a sell. Um, so I'm going to say Devin Booker 2, Dennis Smith 3, DeAndre 8 and 4 right now. And that's not an indictment of 8 and that's just me being higher than other, other players in the group. Yeah, fair enough. I put you on the spot. David, do the same thing and then give me your answer for your favorite of these. I'm going to apologize to Cole for his uh, mentions when this pod goes up um just quickly <laughs> even though I, I know he qualified there that it wasn't a, a complete slide on Aiton uh but we are a son's pod after all and uh yeah you, you may get some criticism there but I would probably and I'm, I'm showing my bias here a little bit and we all know that I'm a fan of Luka Dontich but I'd probably put Devin Booker number one uh I would put Luka Dontich two just ahead of Aiton at three and I'm not all that high on Dennis Smith. I like him as a player, but it's probably why I'm also not that high on, on Dallas's young core overall. I really like the fit between him and Dontich, but if I had to rank them, he would probably be the fourth of, of the lot for me. But interestingly, I just want to kind of throw it back to Cole for a second. And, you know, I've probably got Dallas out of these, you know, group of teams a little further down than he obviously does. And, and that's because, you know, after Smith and Dontich, there's there's not a lot there um, in terms of young core unless you kind of throw a Harrison Barnes and a few others in there. So is there anyone else uh, that gives you that kind of confidence, Cole, going forward in, in Dallas's system? Or is it really just being, you know, tied in, locked into those those two guys and, and Carlisle's the coach? It's really that. I mean, there's not a lot of other guys on this roster that are young guys that really excite me. Like, I'm not huge on Costas on Dacumbo, Jalen Brunson. I think he's going to be a fine backup point guard. He doesn't really factor into this calculus. And you bring up a really interesting point about doing an exercise like this where there's not a lot of clear-cut answers and you can go for a team that has more depth. Like, if you're comparing Phoenix's prospects to Dallas's, like, Phoenix clearly has more. Like, their quantity is better. It's just, do you think the top-level talent is going to meet the top-level talent of Dallas? I think that is... You know, historically more important getting the best players they typically went out over just the most good players but we'll kind of see i think that's an important point you brought up yeah and i think a, an important reply to that and it's kind of what i was trying to to eke out of you there i think is that you know at the end of the day it, it and i think sun's twitter tends to you know go back and forth on this and talking about guys like jackson and, and bender and, and past draft picks but if you kind of one-two combo can really hit the ceiling that you're expecting from those two guys, in, in this case, obviously, Smith and Dontich, and in Phoenix's case, Booker and Ayton, more than likely, uh, you know, the other stuff, it doesn't matter as much, and, and you kind of are going to start moving those guys around and maybe putting vets and, and or, you know, more complementary pieces. So, yeah, I think Phoenix have obviously gone the, uh, the route of 
having you know more bites of the cherry to to hopefully get that one two punch but um yeah i don't think the the overwhelming factor of prospects can be you know factored in too much when it comes to ranking these kind of young cores it really comes to, down to that top end talent at the end of the day bites of the cherry is that is that an australian thing uh had, you know i've got to throw <laughs> got to throw one in every pod max you know this i think i like that i, I kind of like that more than bites of the apple except for like how many bites of a cherry do you get cherries aren't very big man they're not but uh they're, they're delicious they're delicious <laughs> they are delicious i have to admit that uh so um, it's not fair of me to do the, to ask you guys to do this without doing it myself. I, I agree with, with uh, David's ranking. I go Booker, then Luca, but then a pretty a big drop-off before I go to Aiden and Smith, who are very close for me. And the reason why I have Booker above Donjic, I think Donjic is a better prospect than Booker. I don't even think that was like a, it's a hard thing to say compared to like, you know, the pre-draft prospects, but Booker's just shown so much already in the NBA. You know, he's already had a 25-5-5 basically season on, on decent efficiency on an awful team. Like, it's hard for me to take Luca, who I who I love, probably more than almost anybody but you, Cole. But it's just hard for me to pick somebody who's kind of, I guess, still unproven. Although I, I think we both know he's going to be good. It's just Devin Booker's already almost kind of like on the path of being a star at this point, and, and Luca's still got to show that. If that makes any sense. No, it makes a ton of sense, and I think that is an accurate point. This is that's probably overweighs anything. I said as far as just my preliminary ranking because it's all preliminary. Like there's a lot of these guys aren't right. foundational players. Like this is why we're not talking about teams like the Sixers who already have two entrenched guys who are on the path to stardom. You can argue they already are stars. So there's a huge difference between projection here and just I, I guess I don't know. R- ranking guys at this point to me is more just your subjective projection of these guys moving forward rather than a guy like Devin Booker who clearly has proven you know, he's on the path to start him offensively at the next level. If that's the, your approach to this question, for sure. I mean, it makes a ton of sense. Yeah, it's tough. It's kind of a balance, right? And I understand your balance going that way. My balance went slightly the other way. But I think it's close, and I think it's a fun discussion. Let's go to New York, though. Before we move on to the next teams, I think all three of us agree that New York is kind of in this tier, or at least close. And I think Porzingis was maybe had the argument for being the best of these young guys on these teams until the injury. That, that, that kind of makes it a little scary, but... Knox looks great in summer league. It's New York, so they're they, you know they're going to be able to track free agents you know theoretically. I guess Cole, maybe just go through kind of why you have New York in this tier. You're thinking behind that. I think you just touched on it as far as a balancing act between guys who are established in the league for young prospects and then guys with intriguing upside. So Porzingis is in that Devin Booker mold where he's the most established of a lot of these guys in the league and is still young, of course. So you can see some progression. Hopefully he gets better as a passer. And then of New York's young guys, Kevin Knox, I think his summer league is honestly a little bit overblown at this juncture as far as like putting him as a top five pick in retrospect. I'm not there yet, but he did show intriguing scoring. He's huge if you see him play in person at 6'9". Like, if he can really score the ball and, and play defense and switch, I think he's going to be valuable. And then Frank Nilakina is another really intriguing guy. I'm not huge on his maybe point guard projection moving forward, um, but I like him as a two-guard, as a two-way player. And then they just signed, of course, Mario Zonia. We don't know what to expect with him if he's going to be on the team long term. It's also worth mentioning with them, Mitchell Robinson looked incredibly good in summer league. Um, as far as he's more, he's more of a raw guy that's a three- to four-year guy maybe down the road when he hones his technique. He's going to foul a lot. But for what they got him on that contract, that four-year deal with the team option in the fourth year, and for how he played in summer league as like a rim runner type who can really protect the rim, uh, he, he definitely factors into this calculus for me. Yeah, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, Boston taking Robert Williams over him looks like a mistake at this point. David, third to you. Do you, you can either talk about New York or just move on to who you think is maybe the fourth team in this in this calculus. Yeah, well, I'll kind of 
touch on New York by throwing Atlanta in there. Um, I'm probably higher on Atlanta um, from an overall kind of young core talent base perspective. Um, I like a lot of guys on their team. Uh, I think we've touched on that recently in a, in a couple of previous episodes as well. So um, I won't harp on you know guys like Collins and Prince too much other than to say that I, I really love them as, as young players in the league. If we're talking about this kind of group of seven or eight teams as being Phoenix's you know, competitors going forward. You know, obviously we're talking about Phoenix waiting things out a little longer and, and seeing who rises to the top with their their young core. And you can't go past New York from what Cole touched on. Obviously, talent is everything, but uh, out of all these teams, New York's probably Phoenix's um, you know biggest competitor in terms of kind of market. Uh, you'd probably throw Chicago in there as well, whereas some of the others are more, you know, low-level markets that aren't big free agent destinations. So, you know, New York obviously has that pull. If they can get one or two of these guys from the young core to, to really pull things along, then they're going to have no trouble at all getting pieces to, to add to the team. Um, but from an overall, you know, young core talent standpoint, I would definitely rank Atlanta above them. Um, I think, you know, I love Trey Young. I think he's going to be great in the league once he kind of works it all out um and i love what they're what they did with their draft with huerta and and spellman as well and as i said throwing that in with guys that they already had in in collins and prince and then you know i've even just got in my notes you know guys that may not be around long term but you know even guys like deadman that they've taken a, a chance on who's not exactly young but um you know all these pieces together uh, i'm pretty high on what they might be able to achieve and you know, if they held on to a guy like Schroeder for next season, I probably would have thrown them out there as that wild card to maybe sneak sneak into a, an eighth spot if you know everything goes absolutely perfect for them next season. Yeah, I I think I'm I'm with you. I think I'd have Atlanta for Cole. I know that you're one of the highest people around on Trey Young. <laughs> I'm definitely sort of in the same in the same vein. Uh, I, I've been defending Trey Young's performance summer league quite a bit. Do you agree with David? Do you think Atlanta's fourth, or do you have a different team there? I agree, actually. I think that he they're the next team for me, and this goes back to a staple that I'm going to mention with a lot of these teams, is they have a direction, and they have like the creator equity on, on their roster. If you believe in Trey Young, every good team has a guy on the ball who makes good decisions and is a skilled player and can initiate your offense and stuff like that. You just have to have that guy. There's just not a lot of examples historically of a team that doesn't have that kind of player. It can come from the wing spot. It can come via Kobe Bryant or Kawhi Leonard, but you have to have some kind of primary creator, um, ideally for himself and for others. And that's where I think Atlanta in this tier of teams has an advantage over a lot of these others. Like I, you can make arguments for the Bulls and the Wendell Carter, Lowry Marketing pairing, but they don't really have a point guard if you don't believe in Chris Dunn. Same with Orlando. They don't have any point guard. So that's kind of what Atlanta's biggest advantage is to me is they have a direction as far as what they want to be as a team, and they also have the perimeter creator ability that a lot of these other teams don't have. Yeah, and not only do you need that, but you need that guy to be a game breaker, right? You need that guy to be just somebody who just really can't be guarded. And I think Trey Young has that potential, right? Because he's obviously everyone knows about the shooting. He didn't shoot very well in summer league, but the dude can shoot from obviously whatever thirty feet. His vision is, I think we've talked about it on Twitter, still underrated somehow. I don't know why nobody talks about how he can pass. It's befuddling to me that he's so good as a passer maybe as a decision maker I think that's where there's some divisiveness is because mm-hmm. he does make mm-hmm. he does take some bad shots and some of his reads aren't 
impeccable. But as far as court awareness and like spatial awareness, seeing all five guys, he can make any pass at that size with either hand. I think that's a really underrated part of his game. And that's what differentiates him from a guy like Trey Burke, uh, Shabazz Napier, even though both of those guys, funny enough, were like in Zach Lowe's most improved players this year. It just shows that skill guys take longer mm-hmm. to process. But I do think that Trey Young is far ahead as a passer. And that's ultimately what's going to keep him in the league in conjunction with the shooting, of course. Shooting being the most important skill for him just because it opens up the rest of this game. But passing is probably what keeps him in the league um, if everything goes wrong for him. So let's go to a team that has absolutely none of this. But I still think it's a pretty intriguing young core. That's Orlando. Orlando's young core is built entirely around their bigs, particularly on defense. That you know They have the Bombas and, and Isaac and, I guess, Gordon to an extent. Although I don't know if he's long for there. But they, they don't have any sort of young initiating talent whatsoever. So, Cole, how do you how do you rank them given that part of it? Are you, are you just kind of hoping that they can find that guy and put him with that awesome defensive front court? Or how do you even conceptualize this? Yeah, so I put them in the same tier as a team like Atlanta, but I have them after just because of what you just noted. I like their young bigs. Bamba impressed me. I've always been an Isaac fan. I actually had him ahead of several other wing kind of four types in 2017. So I like those guys. I like Aaron Gordon, but the fit isn't ideal as far as I think Gordon's definitely a four. Isaac is definitely a four, maybe small ball five in the playoffs, and Bomb is a five only. Very hard to construct your team where in the modern game, a lot of... the like especially the regular season is offense based. You know, that's where you separate yourself the most is via offense. I like the defensive infrastructure, but if they don't have any perimeter playmaking talent and I've seen a lot of the prospects for the upcoming class, um, draft class next year in 2019, there's not a lot of point guards. Like there's not a lot of high level point guard initiator types. And they're going to need somebody like that over the next three to four years. If they're going to compete with these teams, because bigs can only do so much. They can't get themselves the ball. They're not going to initiate your sets. And if they can't do that, you're dependent on players who can, and they don't have that player. David, what do you think? Yeah, I, I would just use the Hammond link here and, and kind of take it back to the Bucks with Giannis. And, you know, I think he's, you know, only been in the job a, a short amount of time at the Magic. And, you know, maybe he's essentially banking on, on one or Bamba or Isaac, you know, really rising to the top, becoming the Giannis type, not the type of player, but the, the type of role that he played for the Bucks in terms of deciding that this is our guy. He makes everything easier for everyone else and he, he makes our job uh, constructing the roster easier too and um, you know whether it's Bumba or Isaac I'm not totally sure I would probably bank it on it being Bumba more than Isaac because I'm just a little bit higher on him so it's kind of a watch this space one and you've got to give Hammond you know maybe a little bit more time they're probably as Cole touched on one or two years behind say your Atlanta New York Dallas and Phoenix in terms of trying to work out what their core would be going forward particularly because they need yeah to find a you know, a playmaker or, or even a shooter um, to take along with a couple of these young bigs. But, you know, if Bamba can be everything that I almost expect him to be, um, you know, he might be the type of guy that makes kind of constructing that roster a hell of a lot easier for Hammond going forward. So let's go on to the next few. I think that a lot of people would have Sacramento in this group. I don't know if we would. Chicago obviously has a lot of young talent. And then... Cole, you mentioned Memphis earlier. I know that you're incredibly high on Jaron Jackson Jr. As I am, too. I had him number two. I I think he's awesome. Uh, I think Summer League has been encouraging for him for sure. But that's kind of all Memphis has. I mean, they have some fringe guys. They have Javon Carter and and some other guys. But is Jaron Jackson enough for you to put them, to put Memphis over Sacramento, who is just like a bunch of young guys? For me, yes. Because this is one of the balancing, juggling acts of you choose the player, maybe that has the highest impact compared to 
a bevy of guys for Sacramento that I'm just not as high on. Like I'm, I've never been a huge De'Aaron Fox guy. He could definitely prove me wrong. Same with Marvin Bagley, Harry Giles. They have a lot of prospects, and this comes into like the quantity versus quality. I do think I'm subjectively very high on Jaron Jackson. I think he can be a defensive player of the year candidate for multiple years. So I don't see anyone on the Kings with that kind of upside, and I don't see enough impact across the board. Like I think the Kings are different from the Suns to me. Is the Suns have guys where you can see them getting to a level of value, which is positive. Maybe a lot of them don't have superstar equity, but like I like Mikhail Bridges, you can see a very easy fit and avenue to value. I don't see enough of those guys on the Kings to offset a Jaron Jackson on the Memf- on Memphis as far as his ceiling outcome. That makes sense. And, uh, you know, now that you brought up Mikhail Bridges, I realize we should get your thoughts on, on the Phoenix Youngins uh, more extensively. But before we do that, David, do you, do you want to have any comment on either of any of Chicago, Sacramento, or Memphis before we move on? Uh, not particularly. I wouldn't mind throwing it back to you here, Max. I think, you know, we've kind of discussed seven or eight teams now in terms of, you know, being the the next group of franchises that might rise up in a couple of years' time. And I guess just to clarify, we've obviously uh, removed the likes of Boston and Philly from the conversation, even though they have incredible young cores because they're kind of already up there. Um, you know, we essentially put them both in the, the contender range for next year. So, you know, we're, we're trying to project a couple of years forward here. And hopefully Phoenix, uh, in my opinion, at least, you know, stays along the timeline here and, and waits things out um, and kind of builds slowly. But out of the teams we discussed, Max, kind of if we are looking for Phoenix's, um, you know, biggest competitor, so to speak, in terms of being that next big team, if everything goes right, who would you kind of put your money on right now being, um, you know, the one that we really need to watch out for? Well, so you're right in that we excluded a lot of the the scary teams. fortunate thing for the Suns going forward is that Boston and Philadelphia are probably the scariest teams, and they're not in the Western Conference, which is great. Uh, The problem is we also excluded Utah and L.A., who have a bunch of young, nice prospects who Mm -hmm. are scary. Yep. Uh, The thing about L.A., though, is that I'm not sure they're going to keep those guys. They might end up selling them for LeBron help, which would be a good thing for the Suns. Every Suns fan should be rooting for that. Um, Utah, though, is obviously scary. Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert are young, and they're really, really good. So that's 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 scary. But it, among the teams we're talking about, I think just because if, you know all the teams we talked about other than Dallas are, are Eastern Conference teams, I would say it's got to be Dallas. I think Dallas is going to be our primary rival out of, of these teams. And... It's going to be tough for me personally because I, I love Luka Doncic so much and it's going to be hard to watch him kick our ass and knock us out of the playoffs. <laughs> uh, Cole, so yeah, so let's go on. Before we move on to the end of the end of the show, I want to get your thoughts sort of on the Suns prospects a little more in depth because, you know, this is a Suns podcast. Uh, maybe just go through, like, we talked about Booker enough. Let's go through Aiton, Jackson, Mikel, and Bender, I guess. Those are probably the ones who matter the most. And just what, what are your thoughts on those guys? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty high on most of these guys. Like, as much a divisiveness as, like, the Stepien has with DeAndre Ayton having him, like, fifth, I think, in our final rankings. I really like him. It was just an, a reflection of the rest, rest of the draft for me, mostly. I think that, you know, he's going to be a little bit more of a work in progress than a lot of people kind of initially thought. I mean, I always thought he'd be productive as far as points and rebounds right away. He's a great finisher, a great toucher on the rim. But the ancillary parts that contribute to winning are going to take a while as far as defensive reaction off the ball, consistency on that, and as far as mental approach – does Igor let him shoot threes, take guys off the dribble? He didn't show a lot of dribbling acumen at Arizona. I do think he's a really unselfish player, though, and that's my biggest takeaway with him in Summer League is he was just willing to fill a role. He made the extra pass. He didn't seem like he demanded the ball. Like I don't think this is going to be a Dwight Howard-esque situation. Does that reign true for you guys as well as far as his approach? 
yeah, that was my biggest takeaway from Summer League and you know something I, I, I wrote about last week. I think they, they really challenged Aiton, threw him into the fire in, in situations that he you know wasn't exactly used to or comfortable with. And it always seems a little funny saying this uh, because you know it should be just what we expect. But the fact that he didn't pout um, or you know panic in situations, you know he had quite a few turnovers, but I don't think any of them were you know massively eye-opening or, or worrisome in any way. But um, yeah, I was just really impressed with his attitude, uh, and he's a great interview. He says all the right things. He speaks his mind, and um, yeah, I'm just you know the little that we know about him so far in a Suns uniform. I'm just not at all worried about him, um, you know, being egotistical or, or kind of you know, not playing his role for the team. And, and that's what I'm probably most excited about. He seems like an open book in terms of, you know, letting the coaching staff use the tools he has to to the advantage of the team. And um, I guess projecting a few years forward, if that attitude remains and you're kind of dealing with a guy like Booker, who's, you know, had a pretty similar attitude as well along his three years with the Suns. If, if those are the two guys that kind of come to the forefront and then we can put some pieces like Bridges uh, Bender and, and hopefully Jackson around them. Um, although you know probability says they're not all going to work out. Uh, I think it's an exciting time to be a Suns fan. I just I really hope that they kind of stay on this track. That's kind of my biggest takeaway from doing a pod like this. And like we discussed, I kind of hope a lot of these teams in the West fight it out for the playoffs and make some short term moves. And and the Suns can be the ones that you know have the more long term future as uh, LA kind of gives away some of their young guys and um, you know a few other teams chase those playoff spots. I, I sure hope that it's not the Suns making those short-term moves. So, Cole, let's let's go on to, uh, before we finish up here, Jackson, Bender, Mikel. Any any thoughts you have on those guys? I, I mean, I think Jackson and Bender were pretty bad in Summer League, but uh, Mikel is kind of encouraging. What do you think? Just to quickly kind of jump in, I'd love to get your thoughts on uh, you know, Jackson versus Bridges. I think it's kind of a bit of a discussion on Sun's Twitter. You know, let's say Booker and Aiton really rise to the top as the, the two main guys. Tell us what you think in terms of your theories on roster construction in terms of which one is, you know, at their ceiling a more complementary piece for those guys. I think that's the key aspect of your question is at their ceiling. Because then if things go right for Josh Jackson, I think his upside is higher than Mikhail Bridges. He's a better he's a better dribbler. He's a better passer. He's more athletic on switches and stuff like that. So if things break right, I think he can be an impactful playmaking wing. The problem is the, the floor isn't the same as Mikhail's floor. With, with his ability to shoot off movement, he's such an easy plug-and-play fit on any any team, really. Especially the Suns, though, who just have desperately needed shooting. They desperately need wing play, guys who don't make mistakes and kind of play within themselves. And that is the opposite of Josh Jackson right now. He plays outside of himself. We saw that in Summer League. Maybe that was by design or whatnot. Took a lot of bad pull-up twos, got to the rim without a plan. There wasn't a lot of purpose in his game. McHale is just like a consummate professional already. Like He just knows how to fit into a roster. He knows the little things to do. And on a team like the Suns, you need guys who don't make mistakes. So that's kind of where I come down on that paradigm. I think overall, I would bet on McHale more than Josh because I think more things have to go right for Josh to be an impactful player on a, on a rebuilding team or any kind of team that contributes to winning. But if things go right for Josh, I think that his upside exceeds what Mikhail is right now. Yeah, you find support on this podcast because both David and I said the same thing last week, and Kellen picked Josh, so you're on our side. <laughs> <laughs> All right, real quickly, Chris didn't play. 
But maybe Bender versus Chris. Let's do one of those two. I know you were high on Bender coming into the draft. I assume you're going to go with him. Do you, how much do you still believe in Bender, and are you totally out in Chris? Um, I still believe in Bender. You guys have done a really good job hammering this point home. Is Get this guy with a really good coach for a year and see what Igor can do with Bender and Chris. Just get these guys in an ecosystem where they can really improve and work on their individual skill level. I'm still higher on Bender, even though I think the league caught up to him really quickly as far as kind of being a 4-5 hybrid type. Like He can't really post up mismatches effectively, and that really hurts him. He's more just a, a space guy who can attack off the dribble. He's really good as far as passing. Like When you can play him at the 5, Phoenix did this a couple times last year where they were just running cutting actions off of him and he can find guys he's a really excellent passer it's just defensively he can't really anchor at the five unless it's like a backup unit so overall i think both chris and bender are more backup five iterations right now you can play bender at the four because he can shoot um i guess you can do the same with chris but he doesn't have that kind of high level value because chris is not a good enough shooter to be in that role he's more of like a backup five rim runner type which i don't think has a ton of value in the modern game if, if he's not going to make smart choices on switches and stuff like that so i still come down on bender being higher than chris i really want to see what a year with igor does with both of these guys i'm not out on them entirely but i don't know at the same time if you can really be in on them if that makes sense it does make sense it's, it's very hard trust me we try very hard <laughs> as on twitter to be in on bender and it's not easy <laughs> uh cool i think we're ready to move to seven seconds or less unless you have anything else guys I'm ready. Let's do it. Let's go. Okay, so Cole, I don't know if you know about this segment. This is our seven seconds or less segment. What we do is we ask three questions, which we have not had any preparation for. Well, one of us hasn't. The guy asking the question obviously has. And the other person has the answering person, which will be both of you guys this time around. Both both you and David will answer usually within seven seconds or less. But my questions are kind of hard, so I'm going to give you guys an exception. You guys can go longer if you want. Extra credit if you're if you're quicker than seven. I'm uh, I'm notoriously bad at staying within the shot clock on this call, and uh, I will uh, jump in and and say you can you can go first. I'm used to hour and a half podcasts, so I'm not the best at truncating things down into <laughs> one sentence. So I'll try my best. Well, just wait for my first question. <laughs> okay. Ready? All right. So question number one, Markel Fultz, he had a pretty tough rookie year, as everybody knows. So, yeah, she lost his shot. You know, he didn't come back till the very end. He showed some promise when he came back, but he still didn't shoot anything. Given everything we know about him now, I know you were super high on him, Cole. David and I both were too. If you had to give like an average projection, like what if you say you were running the Sixers and your job was to figure out what, what to project what Markel Fultz is going to be in five years... What is he in, like, the average scenario? Oh, God. Um, maybe an average starter, if you don't expect the pull-up to get to the level that it was as a prospect. That, that kind of made him special. So I, I would say maybe an average starter at point guard is an average-ish, maybe slightly below, but around that realm that isn't really totally valuable in the modern game, but also isn't, like, completely damaging to your team. Yeah, I will, I'll go slightly different to Cole on this. I'll say kind of a you know six-man candidate, particularly if he stays with Philly, with Simmons on the team. Um, I could see him being a really dy- dynamic guy that finishes games with that lineup, but his kind of ultimate ceiling, at least with Philly, I think is, is going to be as a, as a six-man. Yeah, I think I'm closer to David in this one. I'm just, the, the extent that his shot was broken, it's hard to imagine that he's going like, to fully recover from that. I will say, I think they're very confident. Um, I don't expect them to really say anything less, but uh, not only with their words, but kind of their actions in free agency and, and the draft. Um, you know, I think that kind of speaks to the fact that they think they uh, can still turn him around, but the deal overall for Philly at this stage is is kind of looking terrible and, and another Ainge heist. <laughs> kind of looking terrible. <laughs> just, just kill me now, guys. This is just, this is so brutal. But at least Fultz is, at least he's working with Drew Hanlon. Like, that guy... 
I saw him do magic with D'Anthony Melton's shot. Maybe there's a chance that he gets it back to a level that he's an, a decent starter. Why the hell doesn't an NBA team just pay that guy $10 million a year or something? I don't get it. I was thinking about that last night, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking that with Mo Bamba. I just think, take him off the market, use his skills to the advantage of just your franchise. But yeah, I guess it all comes down to what these guys are prepared to pay him to do these mini camps with him. Maybe it's uh, more commercially viable for him to be a, a free agent. The Lakers are giving Rondo $9 million. Why don't you just give $9 million a hand and they come teach Rondo how to shoot? I just don't get it. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Question number two. We've been talking a lot about the future in, in this podcast. So the next two questions are going to be, are going to be future-based. Cole, in the 2020s, so not this next season, but the season after that through the 2028-29 season, which team is going to win the most titles? Oh, boy. Um, I'm going to go Philadelphia. Honestly, I think that I believe in their core a little bit more than Boston as far as at the highest levels of play. I'm going to ride them because I do think I believe in Brett Brown as a coach. So they're my bet. Yeah, pretty pretty hard to argue with that. Um, I'm going to put my son's hat on quickly and, and hope that it's <laughs> Phoenix. I'll just I'll just take I'll take one title. I'll just take one right now, to be honest. But you know, maybe I'll throw Boston out there. They've probably held on to some assets to work with, and I think this next 12 months will be interesting. We'll kind of really get a gauge of where they're going to go forward as a franchise with what happens with Kyrie and a, a few of their wings. But it, it pains me to say, but I'll, I'll say the Celtics. I'll take one title from the Suns before I die, much less next decade. <laughs> My answer is Boston. I think that I, I think Philly probably has the better young talent right now, but Boston's just so loaded on so many different levels. I mean, they still have four first-round picks next year, potentially. They have, you know, obviously they have stars now. They have Tatum, who looks awesome. They have Brown, who looks very, very good. I mean, that team's just... It's, it's almost unfair how many assets Boston has. So I'm going to bet on Ainge turning that, you know, treasure chest into a you know perennial contender over Simmons and Embiid, who I think are probably the better prospects. Okay, let's go on to the final question. This is just kind of similar, a little different. In the year 2024, Cole, who will be the best player in the NBA? Oh, my God. Um, Luka Doncic. <laughs> no, I love that. That's I, I, a great I, answer. I don't know, man. That's so tough. I, I think you got to take the best young prospect, and this can go so many different ways. But I'll say Luka just to have some – I mean, so some Twitter can definitely come after me definitively on uh, – yeah, so Luka. You know he's a white European, right? I, I am well aware of that by now. Trust me. <laughs> uh, I'm going to show my bias here, but not how you maybe think. I'm going to say Ben Simmons. I'm going to say Ooh. in 2024, he will have a jump shot. He will be better than Joel Embiid on his team, and he will be the best player in the NBA. And the rookie conversations with Donovan Mitchell will be long, long ago. <laughs> Poor Jazz fan. Uh, that's a fun answer. My, I, I consider Anthony Davis, but I, I'm going to go with Giannis Antetokounmpo. I... I love Giannis so much, and I just I have so much faith in that kid. I, if that kid realizes his potential on both offense and defense, he could just be honestly the best player who's ever played basketball. He's just such a freak. I think that's you know three three worthy choices, and uh, I'll just I'll just add in there that maybe uh, the Australian team can can knock off the dream team at an Olympics if uh, if my prediction comes true. <laughs> hey, maybe Dante Exum too. You got some Australians now. I think, honestly, if I had to bet my life on a player, it would probably be Giannis, frankly. I think that's the best answer, but I'm going to be subjective here. <laughs> you just love Luca so much. I do. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Cole. We really appreciate you joining us. Plug anything you want. Go. 
Um, so if you haven't heard about the stepin.com, you can check that out. Um, I'm sure Sun's Twitter was cognizant of the site in a negative fashion. But uh, if you like draft content and just getting familiar with a lot of these guys, we have 2019 content starting up. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that we have a donation kind of tab up there. We're going to revamp the site. We have huge goals. So if you want to contribute to that in any way, check out the Stepian. Do the Ode to Odin NBA Draft podcast with Sean Darenthal. That might be on a little bit of a hiatus right now, but look for that coming back maybe around October or so. And I also frequently guest on the Game Theory podcast with Sam Vecini. So that's about it for me. Read the Stepian, everyone. It may make you mad sometimes, but it will help you. <laughs> It'll expand your mind. Read the Stepian. As far, as far as us, everyone, thanks for listening. Please subscribe rate review i am max mcc 11 on twitter you probably know that if you're listening david is at the four point play on twitter our podcast is at seven sol pod on twitter david thank you as always thanks max and thanks so much to cole for for joining us as our second guest and uh as he said read the stepian uh they do great work they've got some great writers um and they're filling you know what was a bit of a hole in the market i think there with with draft coverage so definitely check them out if you haven't already and don't give them too much of a hard time if you don't agree with their son's takes yeah i can't really sum it up anymore thanks for having me on guys thanks go appreciate it thanks everybody